Welcome, everybody, to Bridge Builders Communities Church Sermon Podcast. You are listening to one of our messages from our weekly gathering. We hope that you sit back and enjoy and be blessed. Luckily, this week it's an easy topic. That was a joke. You guys laugh at this church, right? That's okay? I guess you have to be funny first in order for... I don't even know. A month ago, six weeks ago, uh, when Pastor Jay came and uh, asked me to, to preach one of the sermons here, and then sent me a list of things to preach on, I was like, whoa, okay. He's not messing around with this series. And as I prayed and thought, uh, the one that just stood out is is this, the gospel and poverty. Uh, little did I know that leading up to this, God would have me in a whole bunch of situations and, and circumstances where this issue in particular was being put in front of my face. And um, so I've been wrestling with this not just from a biblical perspective, uh, although that's been a big part of it, but as a ministry perspective, what I think the church probably should have something to do with helping the poor. Um, and, and that's a complex, as a pastor, as a ministry, that is a difficult thing because, um, you know, all us pastors in the room, it's an easy problem to, to solve, right? It's easy to know who needs the most help. It's easy to know exactly what they need and, and what kind of services. No, it's, it's so hard to figure out how to, how to do this. Um, and then there's also the personal side of it. Each one of us is called to have concern for the poor and to do something within our uh, sphere of influence. So it's been a real, um, it's been a real a season. This is obviously God had me preach this so I could learn a few things. Um, those of you who, who don't know uh, pastors, God often calls us to preach on the things we need to learn the most, not necessarily the things we have the most expertise on. All the pastors said amen to that, right? You know, poverty is really difficult to define. I say poor, and how many people are in this room? There's probably that many different ideas and opinions about what it means. Uh, Compassion International on their website says, Poverty is a complex problem with many aspects, faces, and causes. Habitat for Humanity says there are many ways of measuring and categorizing poverty and no simple unified definition. UNESCO, which is an arm of the United Nations, said uh, reducing poverty has become an international concern. Yet there is no international consensus on guidelines for measuring poverty. So these organizations that their whole mission statement is to work with the poor are sitting here going, so who exactly are we helping? And how do we determine who really needs our help? Uh, Governments and organizations tend to use the concept of a poverty threshold or a poverty line um, just for clarity. 
in the U.S., the poverty threshold for a family of four is uh, earning less than $25,465 a year for a family of four. Um, and the latest statistics say about 12.3% of the U.S. population, or, or just shy of 40 million people, live under that poverty line. It's a lot of people. Uh, the international poverty threshold is earning less than a dollar ninety a day. And uh, I think it was the World Bank that kind of came up with some of these measurements, and they said about 10% of the world's population, the world's population, lives below the poverty line, making less than $1.90 a day. <clears throat> so all these can be helpful they're also not precise and not meant to be an exact science. It's, you know, why did the U.S. choose $25,465 a year? Because there has to be a line somewhere for them to say, who do we help and who do we have to unfortunately turn away? And, you know, um, it's hard. But the real question is, what does God think about poverty? How does he define it? And what are we, his children, called to do about it? That's the purpose of this sermon. And again, it's not easy. (laughs) Um, So the first question, what's God's perspective on poverty? The answer, of course, uh, comes from Scripture. And and as I was studying through this, uh, and I have to say this, um, in this sermon... The challenge was far more about figuring out what I needed to leave out of the sermon as opposed to what I needed to include in it, because there's so much. Um, You could easily do a sermon or a series on the um, connection between poverty and oppression and injustice. That's a whole series in itself. I'm maybe going to touch on it a little bit, but there's not a whole lot I can do that... You could preach a whole sermon on why is there poverty, right? That's a legitimate question. Why are people poor in the first place? And a whole bunch of other things. But uh, as I looked through the scriptures on um, how can we understand God's heart toward the poor... I looked at two things. We can look at the laws that he commanded, particularly in the Old Testament, uh, to protect the poor. You'd be surprised to know there are a lot of laws that he put in place to protect the poor. And second, by looking at a lot of the unique promises that he makes to the poor. There are promises God makes just for the poor. If you're not poor, they aren't for you. Um, So we're going to do that. Everybody turn to Deuteronomy 15. We're going to go to a lot of scripture. I'm a Bible guy, so that's what I do. I look at the Bible. Um, And so I'm going to try and not 
go way over my time. Just a little over my time. No, I'm just kidding. 15. Deuteronomy 15. We're going to look at um, some places where God established some laws uh, to deal with the issue of poverty, particularly to protect the poor. Before we go in here, I think I, I want to pray. Um, I've already had some prayer for this, but uh, Father, I just thank you. You are so good, God, and this sermon, preparing for this sermon helped to reaffirm that in a way I hadn't thought of in a long time. You're good, God. You care about those who suffer. You love, and, and you're in the corner for people who are struggling. And God, I pray that as we go through your word, as we, we talk about these few things here today, that, that we just catch a little glimpse of your heart, and that you would put something in our heart uh, to follow your example, to be imitators of God. As Ephesians 5 1 says, that we would be like you in this, in our concern for and uh, in our, the way we serve those less fortunate than us. So, God, I just pray for your uh, blessing, your anointing, your presence on this sermon, that you would just speak, uh, even if I stumble over all my words, that your voice would be clear. I thank you in Jesus' name. So the first uh, place we want to go, Deuteronomy 15, this is just before Israel is about to go into the, the promised land. And Moses, if you don't know, the book of Deuteronomy is largely Moses kind of going, okay, we're going to go over this one more time, guys, so you know what life is supposed to be like over there. And in that, he comes to this place in Deuteronomy 15 where he begins to talk about this concept of a Sabbath year. I know it's funny, but we're gonna, I'm just going to read it and then we'll talk about it. We're going to read uh, verses 1 through 11. At the end of every seven years, you shall grant a release. And this is the manner of the release. Every creditor shall release what he has lent to his neighbor. He shall not exact it of his neighbor, his brother, because the Lord's release has been proclaimed. Of a foreigner you may exact it, but whatever of yours is with your brother, your hand shall release. But there will be no poor among you. For the Lord will bless you in the land your God is, call, uh, is giving you for an inheritance to possess. If only you will strictly obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all this commandment that I command you today. For the Lord your God will bless you as he promised you, and you shall lend to many nations, but you shall not borrow. You shall rule over many nations, but they shall not rule over you. If among you one of your brothers should become poor in any of your towns within your land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother. That's a great verse to underline, by the way. But you shall open your hand to him and lend him sufficient for his need, whatever it may be. Take care lest there be an unworthy thought in your heart and you say, The seventh year, the year of release is near, and your eye look grudgingly on your poor brother and you give him nothing. 
and he cry to the Lord against you and you be guilty of sin. You shall give to him freely and your heart shall not be grudging when you give to him because for this the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in all that you undertake. For there will never cease to be poor in the land. Therefore I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy and to the poor in your land. The first thing that strikes me about this is he makes three statements that all seem like they contradict each other in this short statement. First he says, there will be no poor in your land. Did you catch that? And then a few verses later he says, well, if someone does become poor. And then a few verses later he says, you will never cease to have poor. So wait, which is it, God? First of all, I think we need to understand in the first place, he he does make it conditional. He said, there will be no poor in the land if you obey my voice. He said, if you do it my way, you'll never have poor. Think about that. That was his plan for Israel, that there would be no poor in the land if you'll obey my voice. And part of that just has to do with the way he's setting society up even here. But another part of that is his divine blessing. He says, I'm going to bless you. And in the second place he says, but if it should happen that someone becomes poor, he gives another command and he says, you need to be generous. And then lastly, he says, look, there's, he's acknowledging, I think, the reality that we all know. He says, there's always going to be poor. And because there's always going to be poor, you need to make sure your heart is right towards them and that you have an open heart. You're not grudging. You're not keeping your hand from them. You're not being stingy. There's so much I could say uh, of this passage. First of all... Um, It all starts off with him saying, every seven years, the nation of Israel, built into their law, has a reset button. Every seven years. Now, Israel never actually really obeyed this. (laughs) There's every indication that they didn't, even God talks about it at later points. But this was how it was supposed to be, that nobody was in debt for longer than seven years in Israel. Every seven years is a reset button. How many people here have student loans and wish that that was the law of the land here? (laughs) Someone once said, we have our student loans stick around so long you begin to think they're a pet. (laughs) Sally Mae moves into your spare bedroom, you know. um, But that was supposed to be the law in Israel. Every seven years... They're released. I actually love how it puts it here in uh, verse... Is that what I'm thinking of? That is a good one, but that's not what I'm thinking of. I don't know where it is. It's somewhere in there. I read it. Uh, But he puts it this way. He says, whatever of yours is with your brother, you shall release. Let me clarify If any of your money is in their bank account, if any of your clothing is in their closet, if your vehicle is in their garage, you release it on the seventh year. 
That's what he's saying. Whatever of yours is with your brother on that seventh year, you give a release. Now, if you're like me, and your brain works the way mine does, first of all, I'm sorry. Um, You might be sitting there thinking, there'd be ways to manipulate that law. But I want you to notice that God enacted this law not to protect the people who had money, but to protect the people who didn't. This law was set up for the poor so that they don't get so burdened and buried under a mountain of debt that never ends. Does this sound like real life? That there's no hope. The hope is every seven years there's a reset button and everything is supposed to be erased and wiped out. This is for the the poor folks. And I love how he puts it here too in verse 7. He says, if among you one of your brothers should become poor. I love how personal he makes it. Because he's implying someone you know. You watch it happen. Someone who was fine last month, but they get evicted, their car gets impounded, they, you know, whatever, their accounts get... You watch it happen. He puts it in this context, right? If they become poor, you are not to harden your heart. Think about that for a few seconds. You are not to harden your heart. And here's where I want to challenge, you know, some of us. We have an unfortunate tendency sometimes in American culture when we see someone who's poor to jump to judgment before we go to compassion. What do you guys think of people who receive welfare? It's a lot of strong opinions out there. Oh, they're lazy. They're manipulating the system. They're just takers. You know, I know this is this is direct, but we got to check ourselves. Because <clears throat> you don't know their story, first of all. And of course there are people who manipulate. Of course there are, there are bad eggs in any situation. Um, but it, it, does that mean somehow every person who's doing well is a righteous person? And they got there through good means? That they never manipulated? You know, there's just such a reality that, that we are not. This is what script, this is the, what God is commanding. You are not to harden your heart. So what's the opposite of a hard heart, everyone? A soft heart. What do you think of when you think of a soft heart? You can shed a tear. You can feel their pain. You can go, oh, that must be so hard. It says you're not to harden your heart and you're to open your hand. Not to be tight-fisted with people in need. I could keep going on and I want to, but I need to move on or else I will be here forever. I just want to briefly, we're not going to read it, but the next section, continuing on with this idea of the seventh year release, talks about slaves uh, in the nation. People Often slavery was an option for the poor. If you don't know where you're going to get your meal, sometimes being a slave ain't fun, but at least I get fed. And some people, that would be their only option. And every seven years, all the slaves were to be released. This was part of the law, too. And you want to hear something crazy? All right, I do need to read this part. Verse 13. 
And when you let him go free from you, you shall not let him go empty-handed. This is God's law. Shall not let him go empty-handed. You shall furnish him liberally out of your flock, out of your threshing floor, out of your wine presses. The Lord your God has blessed you. You shall give to him. You shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt. You see, even in this case where, where someone sold themselves or was sold into slavery or however it happened on year seven, they go out and he says, and you send them out with stuff so that they can get their life going. This is God's law. Does this, is this beginning to show you God's heart towards the poor? Did he care about the poor? Alright, turn to Deuteronomy 24. There's another great little passage here. In Deuteronomy 24, we're going to start in verse 10. There's this little, I like to call it sort of machine gun style commands. Because it's, it's a lot of little commands just right after another. He just, he's trying to get them all off, I guess. But starting in verse 10 of Deuteronomy 24, listen to some of these. When you make your neighbor alone of any sort, you shall not go into his house to collect his pledge. You shall stand outside, and the man to whom you make the loan shall bring the pledge out to you. Why? Anyone want to take a stab at why he's saying you don't go into his house, you stand outside, and you wait for him to bring it out to you? Go ahead, you can talk in church, it's okay. It's about dignity. Not going to go into his house and root through his stuff to figure out. He's going to choose the pledge to give you and bring it out. You are to show this person that you're loaning money, there's already a power difference. Right? You wait outside. This is God's law. Again, this is not someone's good idea. This is the the God of the universe saying this is how you're to treat someone in a situation like this. Let's go on. Uh, Verse 11. uh, Sorry, verse 12. And if he's a poor man, you shall not sleep in his pledge. You shall restore to him the pledge as the sun sets, that he may sleep in his cloak and bless you. And it shall be righteousness for you before the Lord your God. Let me explain this too. When you're giving a loan to someone who is poor, a very common thing they would give as pledge or collateral would be their cloak. Why would they give their cloak? Because they ain't got nothing else. And I want you to hear what he's saying. He's saying, here's what you do. If you're giving a loan to a poor person and they give you their cloak as collateral, you hang on to it for the day, and at sundown you go give it back to them because they're going to be cold at night. Maybe in the morning you can go back and pick it up until he pays back his loan. But that's what he has to keep warm. You don't keep that from him. Do you know, is that how collateral works? No. He's making an exception for someone who's destitute. This is wacky. I mean, like when you, forgive my terminology, but but it's, it's almost weird, but God is going so far out of his way to make sure we take care of the poor. Let me go on a few verses. Uh, Verse um, 14, you shall not oppress a hired worker who is poor and needy, whether he is one of your brothers or one of the sojourners who are in your land, within your towns. You shall give him his wages on the same day, before the sun sets, for he is poor and he counts on it. 
lest he cry against you to the Lord and you be guilty of sin. Jump down to, uh, what is it, verse 19. It's a couple more. When you reap your harvest in the field and forget a sheaf in the field, you shall not go back to get it. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, the widow, that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. When you beat your olive trees, you shall not go over them again. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. When you gather the grapes from your vineyard, you shall not strip it afterwards. It shall be for the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow. All these things he's saying, look, you don't glean right up to the edge of your field. You don't go over your trees twice. If grapes fall to the ground, you leave them on the ground so that those who have no other means of feeding themselves will have something. This is God's law. Again, not some man's suggestion. These are wonderful suggestions. I wish I'd have thought of some of them, but God thought of them. I'm running out of time, aren't I? No, I'm good, okay. I got another hour or so. We go on and on, but God is setting up these laws to protect the poor in the land. He wants to make sure. Does uh, I'm, uh, This isn't meant to be a criticism so much as it is glorifying God. Does our nation have any laws this good to protect the poor? Nothing even close. Nothing even close. I'm not saying we got nothing going on for the poor. We do. But God really cared about the poor. Let's look at a few promises made to the poor. I realized something I forgot to do here, too. I talked about how hard it is to define poverty, but then I never really gave a biblical definition for it. It's really quite simple. Um, when you, the Bible never says, this is what it means to be poor. You have to look at like tons of scriptures and, and figure out what the Bible means when it says poor. And it really says, to be poor means you don't have enough of the basic necessities of life, food clothing, shelter. It means you lack these basic necessities and are largely dependent on the charity of others to provide it. That's what it means to be poor. Like you don't have really any way to get it. That's why some of some of the categories that are most often mentioned are widows and orphans. Because in that culture widows couldn't just go out and get a job, especially if you're an older woman. If your husband dies and you don't have any children to take care of you, you're just sort of dependent on other people taking care of you, bringing you food, getting you clothes. Same with orphans. You know, we have have a foster care system now to take care of them. I don't know if anyone has had any interaction with the foster care system. Um, There are a lot of really awesome people who become foster parents, but that system does not raise kids well. It's just, I mean, it's not, you know, adopted kids turn out usually pretty well because they're completely brought into a family and become part of that family. Foster care system is is rough on kids. And yet, I used to to train foster parents and I'd I'd say to them, I'd say, your job is a necessary evil. And they'd all look at me funny. I'd say, I'm so glad you're doing what you're doing, but you shouldn't have to exist. Parents are doing what they should. Okay, I'm getting off. Um, 
But orphans don't have a lot of way. People who don't have parents, kids who don't have parents to take care of them, um, they miss out on a lot of things. I know a lot of foster kids who, you know, CPS comes in and removes them from the family and they go out of their house with a trash bag with like two changes of clothes and maybe a teddy bear. And that's all they have to their name. Do they have needs? Does a 10-year-old kid have any capacity to meet his own needs or her own needs? No. So let's look at a couple promises to the poor, and then, and then we'll talk a little bit about our responsibility. I'm not going to have you guys turn here, but if you're taking notes, you can take down the, the Scripture references. Psalm 12, verse 5 says, Because the the poor are plundered, because the needy groan, I will now arise, says the Lord. I will place him in the safety for which he longs. Isn't that a beautiful promise? Because the poor are plundered, because they groan, when when people who are destitute cry out to God, God says, oh, I'm going to rise up for them. I'm going to bring them to the safety for which they long. Isaiah 25.4 also says, For you, speaking of God, for you have been a stronghold to the poor, a stronghold to the needy in his distress, a shelter from the storm, and a shade from the heat. God promises to bring comfort to those in distress. Those who are needy. These are promises. The implication is that they cry out to the Lord. Scripture says he's going to hear them. A few other promises that I found. Uh, Psalm 109.31 For God stands at the right hand of the needy one to save him from those who condemn his soul. To death. Psalm 140, verse 12. I know that the Lord will maintain the cause of the afflicted and will execute justice for the needy. These last two verses deal with the idea of oppression and injustice. This is a tough subject to navigate. When I read through the scriptures, what I see largely is that God does not seem to indicate through the scriptures that that he believes all poverty is the result of oppression. He doesn't seem to to make that connection. There are people in in our culture, people talking, who would absolutely say that. The only reason they're poor is because someone oppressed them. Someone took their money. I don't see that clearly stated in scripture, but what I do see clearly stated in scripture is that the poor, the needy, the destitute, They are subjected to oppression and injustice far more frequently than others. They are the targets of oppression. You might say they're easy targets. Let me give you an example. Um, Did you know, again, I didn't even go here, but you know there's actually a law in the scriptures where it says, if a poor man comes to you for a loan, you shall not exact interest. Isn't that interesting? If they got money, charge them interest. That's your business, okay. But if he's poor, he borrows $100, he pays back $100. You don't charge him one extra cent. Contrast that. You guys ever heard of these uh, payday lenders? 
They just set themselves up in, you know, upper middle class suburban neighborhoods, don't they? No? They find poor neighborhoods. Do you know what uh, interest, kind of interest they charge? They don't even really call it interest, but it's the average. I looked it up. The average is about 400% on the loan. Average turnaround time is about two weeks. So I borrow $100 from you, I'm going to pay you back 400 That's injustice, people. That is wrong. They are picking on people who have really serious immediate needs. They're, they're okay, I either got to keep my lights on or I got to buy food. And these payday lenders come in. I'm not trying to start anything here. But, um, but th- this is an example of a business. Uh, 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 their model is to pick on people who don't have enough. And then they gouge them on the other end. I love that God goes, you don't get to do that with the poor. You don't charge them interest. It's, not the, it's okay to lend them money. Sometimes you need to borrow money somewhere. But this is an example that people in poverty are open to oppression and injustice. Uh, they're more at risk. I'm trying to find the word, but I can't. They're more susceptible to it than others. And God, in these couple of verses, I love this, God stands at the right hand of the needy one. Do you hear that? God stands at the right hand of the needy one to save him from those who condemn his soul to death. The people that want to mistreat him, God comes and stands at his right hand. Psalm 140 says, The Lord will maintain the cause of the afflicted and will execute justice for the needy. He sees. Don't you think God sees the injustice? Don't you think he sees the oppression? Don't you think he sees when some slick salesman is pulling one over on someone who just wants to get some food for their kids? And it angers him. And he says, I'm going to make sure this person comes to justice. God stands at the right hand of these people. So there's these awesome promises. Again, I I could, there's so many. (laughs) I'm sitting here going, okay, which ones do I not address? Because as cool as they would be, I can't cover everything I want to cover. So the second question, what's our responsibility to the poor? I think we've got a glimpse at least of God's heart for the poor, right? God cares. He's there for them. So what do we do? First of all, we have to care. might seem simple. Are we compassionate towards the poor or do we stand in judgment? What we already read, do not harden your heart. If you see one of your brothers become poor, don't harden your heart. That's the first command. Don't harden your heart. Have a soft heart towards your brothers and sisters in need. Everybody turn to uh, 1 John 3.17. There's another one. If it's not already, you should probably underline it. 1 John 3.17. 1 John 3.17 says, But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? If you have the world's goods, 
And I'm going to guess that's every one of us in this room. You have a little bit more than you need, maybe a lot more than you need. Your fridge is full, your cupboards are full, you got plenty of clothes hanging on in your closets. Probably drove here in a car. You got something. If you have the world's goods and you see your brother in need and you go, I ain't helping him, and you got surplus. How does God's love dwell in your heart? Look at verse 18. Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and truth. It is so easy to say, oh, I love you, brother. Talk is cheap. It's love in deed and in truth. We have to care. Second, We must treat the poor with dignity. Read James chapter 2. Flip over there real quick. James chapter 2. I'm just going to read a couple verses here. Starting in verse 1. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, And if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith? Kind of destroys the prosperity message, doesn't it? God has chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which He has promised to those who love Him. But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you are called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You're doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. James was saying, look, if two people come in, one's rich, one's poor, you don't treat the poor any differently than you treat the rich one. The poor person gets dignity. I remember hearing a story years ago about a, a it's like a soup kitchen type ministry or whatever. And one night, they came up with this cool idea. One night, normal time, soup kitchen's on, people start showing up for dinner, and when they show up at the door, there's a guy in a tuxedo, says, how many are in your party? Uh, Just one, you know. So they go, let me show you to your seat, and they bring him, they bring out a, a glass of champagne, and they feed him a fine dinner with a tablecloth and a little flour and a candle, and... People were weeping because they felt respected. It was dignity that they gave to these people through that. Such a simple thing, right? They don't get to go to those fancy restaurants. If you ever stood in line at a soup kitchen, you know it ain't a dignified way to get food. Jesus said that when you throw a dinner party, don't invite your friends, but invite the poor. When's the last time you had poor person in your house. Does that make you uncomfortable? Good. Makes me uncomfortable too. We've done it a few times and it was uncomfortable. And we did it. But 
Jesus had to do that. Lastly, we must help however we can. John Wesley said, Do all the good you can, by all the means you can, in all the ways you can, in all the places you can, at all the times you can, to all the people you can, as long as ever you can. Amen? You don't have to donate millions, or thousands, or hundreds to charity. You help wherever you can. Buy a meal for someone. Or make one and deliver it to their house. Give someone some old clothes that you haven't worn in a few years, sitting in your closet. James actually said the moth will witness against you. Clothes stayed in your closet for so long, they got ruined, and now nobody can use them. Why didn't you give them to someone else who could have used them? Watch someone's kids for them for free. Didn't get as many amens on that one as I thought I <laughs> Amen, yeah. That was for me, no. Um, how about just this? Like we already said, be kind, compassionate, hospitable. Treat them with dignity. And I don't mean to, to embarrass her, but Sister Janae over here, she did something that I loved. A little while ago, she countered someone on the street asking for money, just, you know, like we all have. And her first question is, what's your name? And it hit me. How often have I just thrown some change at someone and just asking their name? That brought dignity into that situation. I care about you, not just throwing you a couple of quarters. And I love that. Such a simple thing. You know, the reality is that the problem of systemic poverty in our society is really largely beyond our capacity to solve and beyond our purview though I do believe the church has the answer. The job of the church is first to care about the plight of the poor, to see them, and to be moved to action. Secondly, the church is to be a refuge, a shelter, a hiding place for the poor. We have to be a safe place for those with real problems that don't have easy solutions. Can we be a safe place? Can they feel comfortable coming into our meetings, into our homes? Lastly, the church has to become a place that is ready to meet the immediate material needs of the poor and the deeper spiritual needs that they might not even be aware of. It's not an either-or. We struggle sometimes. We just want to meet the immediate needs and send them on their way and and maybe have done them no good in the long run. Other times we get so focused on meeting their spiritual needs, we go, well, you don't really need food. What you need is Jesus. And, uh, you know, when you don't, people don't know that you care. They don't care how much you know. Is that how it goes? I think I butchered that a little bit, but... We need to do a both and. We need to figure out ways where we can meet real needs that people have that are staring them in the face and and scaring them to death and meet those needs and at the same time be there, be present, be, be human beings in their life that show them dignity and love and compassion and give them the things they need most, which is the gospel. Pray for people. I've, I've, 
begun to learn how powerful just laying hands on someone and praying for them is. People who don't know Jesus, it's weird. But I've rarely had a situation where I, I stepped out and did that and they weren't touched and blessed by that. I want to share just a quick story and then I'm done. I'm not too bad here. Um, just happened yesterday. It was such a, a simple little thing, but as I reflected on it, I, I thought, oh, what a nice illustration for the end of my sermon. <clears throat> Generosity has to become part of our life. If you're a Christian, um, patience, we all know we need patience. We all know we need self-control. We also need generosity. <laughs> that's that's a, a core Christian virtue. And God has been doing a lot in my life in the past several years and teaching me how to be generous, how to be a little bit freer with my money. That doesn't come naturally, by the way. This is God working on me for years and years and years. I remember when I first got saved and I was learning about the gifts of the Spirit and I found out there was this one called giving. I was like, I definitely don't have that one because I don't want to give anyone anything. I'm, I'm, I was stingy. But God's been doing a thing in me and teaching me about giving and we, we were out at Cracker Barrel for breakfast. Don't judge us. Um, and... Uh, if you've ever gone to a restaurant with little kids, you get there and you go, this sounded like a good idea. <laughs> and we're a little stressed and there's all this chaos. And in the middle of all of it, one of us adults, I won't say who, dropped a, <laughs> dropped a thing of maple syrup, hit the ground, sprayed all over the lady at the table next to us. And we're like... <laughs> just getting worse and worse and worse and you know we apologized profusely gave her some baby wipes and all this stuff and you know she she was gracious but could tell she was a little annoyed and toward the end of the dinner the thought just popped into my head I said you know what I'm, I'm going to offer to pay for their meal this not again this is not my natural inclination this is after years of God working on my heart and I said we're just going to offer to pay for their meal so I talked to my waitress and I said, we, you know, we'd like to, to cover their check. And she goes, okay, let me go talk to my... She said, that's really nice. Let me go talk to my manager and see how to arrange that. She comes back a couple minutes later and I got really annoyed for a second because she goes... Starts talking to the table next to me and she said, I just wanted to let you know that this gentleman wanted to pay for your meal. And I'm like, I didn't want it like... I wanted it to be a surprise when they got up to the register. Um, but then she proceeded to say... And when I told my manager this, she was so moved, she said, we'll cover it. I don't know why I'm getting emotional about it. But But she said, we'll cover the meal, not for us, but for them. And uh, it just taught me, when you're generous, it multiplies blessings. You don't lose I, don't, I really don't know why. That's it. I'm wearing my wedding jacket, so I'm emotional. Um, you don't lose when you're generous. This wasn't even generosity towards the poor. They're at Cracker Barrel. Okay? 
This wasn't me going out of my way, going down Main Street and trying to find some homeless person. This was just, can I be generous? How many times, I guess that's my point, how often do we have opportunity to not close our hand but to open it? And as Christians, we ought to be that weird that we're willing to pay for random people's meals. We're willing to go out of our way and give when it's inconvenient. And it was just neat to see, you know, the simple act. It was, I mean, it's going to be what? I don't know, 30 bucks, something like that. I can live without those 30 bucks. But when I did that, it blessed the waitress to hear that. It blessed the manager. The manager made a decision to comp their meal. So then they're blessed. And then I didn't actually have to pay it. So that was an extra blessing to me. And so I decided to give a nice tip to the waitress too, you know, because I was already right. So like, it just, just a simple act of generosity just overflowed in blessing. And I want to encourage you guys, don't harden your heart. And don't close your hand when you see needs. God's going to come through. He's going to bless. And it's never going to go bad when you decide to be generous, especially when you do it in His name. So with that, I'm going to end. Um, let me pray really quick, and then I'll have Pastor Jay come up. Father, we need your heart. God, it's, it's not even a matter of, of us changing so much the way we think, though that's part of it, or changing the way we act. God, what we really need is a supernatural move of the Holy Spirit to change our heart, to think like you think, to feel like you feel. You love the poor. We know you love everyone, but God, it just seems as I read your word that there's a special place in your heart for those who are struggling. You're not blind to the suffering of people. You're not blind to the injustices. You're not blind to those or deaf to their prayers. God, you... You make so many wonderful promises, and you teach us and you show us, God, I think of how the early church, it says that they didn't think that anything that they owned belonged to themselves. Everything was, they were so free and willing to give of their own possessions to anyone who had need, and I pray that you would move in your church to do the same, that we would be so radically, supernaturally generous in everything we do. God, that the world would really see that we're your disciples because of the love that's in our heart. So God, we thank you. I pray that you just teach us, show us, have your way in our lives in this area. Help us to begin to see those in need around us, really see them, and to have compassion, Lord. We love you and we praise you. In Jesus' name, amen.